And if you're visiting with us, we certainly want to welcome you here to our church. Um, we have a practice of working our way through um, books of the Bible, believing uh, that God, God's Word is relevant, and we just need to see how it's relevant uh, as we unpack and we work our way through the text of Scripture. And um, we are presently in the book of Exodus, and we're presently in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And I, I hope that you're taking time to reflect on the Ten Commandments and to put them to memory. Uh, and hopefully the time in the Word is going to flesh out what the commandments are about. Maybe it's going to adjust your thinking as to what they're about. Maybe they were just kind of things that were put on a wall. Um, but now they're going to be commandments that have life and, and, and strength and power for you to live for God's glory. So let's uh, stand together and we're going to read um, verses 1 through verse 7 together. And, um, and then I'm going to pray, okay? Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Lord, we ask for wisdom now. We place ourselves under your authority and your word. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to, to have his way to bring this word uh, to light so that we can understand it, we can comprehend what it means, and we can begin to think about how it applies in the context of our lives. Lord, may we be convinced that although these truths are in the Old Testament and, and a list of, of commandments that they are very relevant for us today and that we need to seek to understand, Lord, how they work out in our lives. So, Lord, help us today. What we, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me, as your mouthpiece, to be faithful, to proclaim your truth as you have breathed it out for your people so that we can all together grow to become mature in Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What factors were at work when you chose the names of your children? What were you thinking about? Why did you choose those names? Well, maybe another question would be this. What is the reason for your parents choosing your name? You know, why are you called who you are? Did they have some paradigm that they were working through? My full name is Roderick Allen Lyndon Phillips. I'm not going to give you my social security number, but at least you know my full name. Okay? And my, my name growing up in England was, was Roddy. That's what everyone called me. That's in fact what I knew my name to be, Roddy. But then when I came to the United States when I was 16, um, there was a shift. 
Robbie was kind of a weird name to hear people here in the States. And so I was called Rod, and that just stuck with me. Um, but when I went to college, um, or even in high school, I was called Roddy, Ruru, believe it or not, Ralph, because you take the letters of my name, they spell out Ralph. Um, in college, I was called Edor Phillips, which is Roddy Phillips backwards. That was kind of something going on in the 80s, I think people were speaking backwards. Um, Dorothy, because we had this thing going around that we called each other by our mother's names, okay? Which was really fun when we were playing on a soccer field. And, hey, Dorothy, pass me the ball. It just confused the opposition as to what was going on. And then Roderick was also a popular one. Now, my name means, Roderick means famous ruler. You feel the glow, right? Uh, Alan means little rock. Lyndon means from Limewood. And Phillips means a keeper of horses. And in case you're wondering about our church leadership, Edward means wealthy guardian. Um, Alexander means defender of the people. And Albert means noble elf. Okay, so uh, I want to assure you that you are in good hands because you have a famous ruler, a wealthy guardian, a defender of the people, and a noble elf helping to shepherd you, okay? So I just want you to be mindful of that. But friends, look, all fun aside, the truth is that none of us choose our names. Our names are chosen for us, typically by our parents. They were given to us. There are Given names is what they're called, right? And in our context, names are chosen for all sorts of reasons. You think about this now. People choose names because they are either popular or trendy in that culture of that day. They're given after famous people of that time, athletes, actors, politicians, and the like. They're given to honor people that the parents love, could be family members, uncles and aunts, grandparents. But we certainly avoid naming our children after people that we have dated. That would be really awkward, right? Um, you know, you're naming a child after someone that you have this long relationship with. I hope that's not true for you, but just think about that. We, we don't, maybe I'll say it, but in our minds, we're like, no, we're gonna skip that one as we're going through the book. Now, here it is. In ancient times, it was different. And this is true in Israel in particular. Names were given by parents to express something about that child in anticipation for that child's life. But one of the remarkable things about God is that no one ever named him. Well, people named him, but he reveals his own name. God's true name is chosen and revealed by God himself. So we don't tell God who he is. He tells us who he is. And when we come to this third commandment, let's read it again together. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, just a quick review of where we've gone so far with these 10 commandments. First of all, um, the first commandment really deals with and emphasizes the object of our worship that we are to worship the right God, God and God alone. But then in the second commandment, 
Uh, we are uh, looking at the emphasis of the, that we worship the right God, but we worship Him in the right way. Now that we come to this third commandment, the emphasis here is how we treat God. And that is evidenced then in particular by how we use His name. So God is concerned about how we treat His name. And so for our purposes this morning, I would suggest to you this proposition. The third commandment is a call for God's people to defend the honor of God's name. Now, much of what is said here in this third commandment is said in the negative. But by virtue of it being in the negative, then there is also a positive. And the positive here is encompassed in the fact that we need to defend the honor of God's name. So as we walk through this text, I'd like to consider it under three headings that flow out of this text. First of all, the name, the command, and the warning. First of all, then, a name to know. Again, we have here in the commandment, the first part, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So we need to look at this statement in its context. If you just come to chapter 20 of Exodus and you read these Ten Commandments, you may not comprehend why this statement is actually so powerful. And if you remember, and you've been here a while, you know that the theme of the book of Exodus has to do with knowing him and God revealing himself to us, God making himself known. He made himself known to Moses in the burning bush. He makes himself known to Pharaoh in Egypt uh, and the people of Israel through the plagues. He makes himself known to Egypt um, and the surrounding nations when he delivered Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. And in particular, what God is, is making known is his name. Now, I want to make sure that we see that. That when, when God says, I want them to know that I am the Lord, we want to see that in the text. Let's just take a, a, a few moments here to walk through just a few passages. If you have your Bibles in the book of Exodus, I just want to show you this resounding theme that continues on, and particularly, you might say, in the first um, uh, 18 chapters or so, uh, the, the, the main narrative section, just unfolding what God is about here. And I want you to consider, first of all, the plagues. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. This is the first plague. And God is speaking to Moses and saying, go tell Pharaoh this is what's going to happen. And he says in verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So this plague is happening so that you will know that I am the Lord. Okay. Then in chapter 8, verse 22, this is the fourth plague. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwelt so that no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Again, he wants to declare who he is to Egypt, in particular to Pharaoh. Then we go to the seventh plague. Chapter 9, verses 14 and 16. Verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up, talking to Pharaoh here, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Then we move into chapter 14, 
And this is really, this is Israel crossing the Red Sea. There's actually two, two verses that are very similar. I'll read one of them, but it's this. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, but that they will know that I am the Lord. And then in chapter 16, verse 12, Israel is receiving manna and quail in the wilderness, and here's what we have. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. All right, so I'm just trying to show you, and I'm trying to remind you that there's this emphasis that God is trying to reveal himself in all of these um, stories, all these events that are taking place. There's a purpose behind it. It is that God would be known. Now, if you notice, God gives his third commandment in the third person. And so that highlights that he's talking about his name. And his name is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the, I would say, the English translation of Yahweh. This is his name. And so the emphasis here in the statement is on the name of the Lord. You shall not take the name Say the name of your God. Well, the name of the Lord, your God. So this is his name. And I want us to consider Exodus chapter 3 here because this is what God is revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. And notice what it says. Verse 14 of chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, there it is, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Egypt, the, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this, this name, Lord, is a name that describes God as being the self-existent one the one who is sustaining all of his creation. And when we speak of God's name, it encompasses every aspect of his being, his character, his attributes, his works, his reputation. So the name of the Lord is who God is in all of his being. And so we can say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So he's not merely the God of Israel. He is the Lord, the creator, the sustainer and ruler of the world. And his name is majestic. It is glorified above the heavens. And then a little later in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, God is still teaching Israel about himself, and here's what he says as he speaks to Moses. This is verse 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, or by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So get what he's saying. Up until, up until his dealing with Israel in Egypt, he was not known by his people by the name Yahweh. So this is a new revelation. This is a new description. 
Now, I'm, I'm saying all this because now when we come to the mountain, God seeks to make himself known in a fuller and deeper way. The evolution of God's self-revelation is taking place. It's still taking place. He's not done teaching his people about who he is. God is still making himself known. He's still revealing himself to his children. And friends, that's the way it is in our walk with God. Now, it's not that God is giving us new revelation about himself. He's given us the revelation in his scriptures. But as we place ourselves under the scripture, as we place ourselves under his word, we are now coming to new understanding. We're understanding God afresh each time. He's like, ah, this is who God is. Ah, now I see him in a fuller and a deeper way. This is what it is to walk with God. And you're going to know God better today than you did 10 years ago. And 10 years from now, hopefully, if you're, if you're a disciple of Christ and you're pursuing him in the right way, you're going to know him even more in a deeper and a fuller way as you place yourself under his word. And that's why uh, what the Apostle Paul emphasized when he writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He's saying, I haven't arrived. I'm still striving to know him. And Paul knew that he still had much to learn about the Messiah he served in worship. And he wants to press on toward the goal of maturity in Christ. So as we, as we begin our time in this text, we begin seeing uh, how, how, how God is unfolding this third commandment. Uh, we have to understand that this third commandment hinges on us valuing the name, the character, the attributes, the person and the work of God. So the question here initially is this, do you know him? I mean, do you know him? Not about him, but do you know him? Is there an ongoing personal uh, relationship, interaction, awareness, understanding of him? The next question is this, are you seeking to know him more? And I think that one of the, one of the problems with the American church, and you know what, this could be the problem with our church, is that we're settled with good theology. And we say, I've got our theology down. I can, I can sign off on the doctrinal statement and kind of feel like I've got it. And God is calling us to, to understand him in a, in a deeper, fuller way, to keep on plugging away. And, and to, to, to rid ourselves of kind of a, a, a shallow understanding of God and to dig deep in his word and get that, that fuller understanding. I don't mean to be mystical, but you know, you take your time working yourself through a book of the Bible, you begin to see God, God completely different as opposed to kind of hopping all over the place and just getting kind of a surface level. So friends, this is the heart of the matter. You might claim to know God, but if you don't value the name of God, then what we might rightly conclude is that you really don't know God. You might claim to know him, but if you don't value his name, it's possible that you actually don't really know him. The third commandment reveals that they both go hand in hand. So this is the name that we need to know. Secondly, there's a command to obey. Again, same, same section here, chapter 7, uh, the, the, the first part, A, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So you've got to know the name, but now it's what do you do with that name once you know the name? 
And here we have this, this expression, to take up, right? It's, uh, or to take, it literally means to take up. It's a legal term that means to take an oath. It's something you would do in the context of taking up an oath in court. To use here, however, it, 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 is, it is broader in its use in the context of the third uh, commandment. It is to take up with our lips, with our actions, and with our attitudes. And the point of the third commandment is that the name of God be treated with respect, not only in our speech, but also in our whole living. And this third commandment then also means that we are not to use God's name at all unless we are using it to speak of him um, or to speak or to speak to him or to speak about him. Okay. So there's a right rightness for us to actually use his name, but the problem is that isn't always what happens. To speak God's name in a context that makes no meaningful reference to him is the very definition of using his name in vain. In other words, there's no point in even mentioning his name. And look, we live in a culture where you can walk out and just go to the mall or go, go across the Walmart or maybe uh, to go get yourself a, a burger at In-N-Out, and you will likely hear someone using the words Jesus Christ or God. And they're not intending to speak to him. And they're not intending to speak about him. But it's out there, right? And that's, the, that's, the, that's one of the points that we're going to get to. Another way to understand the idea of take is the idea of embracing, right, embracing. When a couple gets married, often the vows are stated as following. Do you, Martha, take David to be your lawfully wedded husband? And then do you, David, take Martha to be your lawfully wedded wife? What's, what's going on there? There's, there's an idea of ownership. I am embracing this person. I am identifying with them. I am I wanting to, to own them in the right sense. They, they are mine. I am theirs. So when we, when we take up, um, we, in this context, we take up an oath, but we also take up to identify. And that's what, happen, what happens when Christians, when they are converted, we take on a new name. We take on a new identity. We embrace Christ, and, and he is now our new Lord and Master. And we take on this name, Christian. So friends, in our text, the Israelites are to take on the name of the Lord their God. And in so doing, they take on uh, a responsibility to either take on the name of the Lord in vain, or take on the name of the Lord in reverence. Now let me use a sports analogy to kind of help us think through this. For years, Tom Brady, by many considered to be the, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, in football, he ended his relationship with the New England Patriots. Now, he played for them for 20 seasons, and in playing for them, he won six Super Bowls. I mean, it's, it was, it's a really incredible career. But you probably heard that he's moved on now to play for Tampa Bay Buccaneers. His all life of playing with, was playing for the Patriots, but he left that old life, and now his new team are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He has a new name, new colors, new coach, new location, new goals, new objectives. And now he's playing for a team, a new team, and he has a new name. He doesn't speak for or reflect on the Patriots anymore. 
He speaks for and identifies with the buccaneers. There's a change that's taking place. I mean, you and I were once motivated by the prince of the power of the air, right? Satan was at work in us, Ephesians 2, but God made us alive. He moved us from darkness into light. Something new took place. There's an old life, there's a new life. We have a new identity because we are followers of Christ. So now, let's think now about these two statements that I've made. First of all, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That's what the text says. It's the, it, we're looking at this now, and if I'm going to say in the negative, do not do something. And the idea here of in vain is something empty or something inappropriate. Therefore, it's, taking, it's talking about uh, the inappropriate, empty misuse and abuse of God's name. And what I'd like to do is just to lay out five or six examples of what that might look like. So first of all, uh, I want to jump in and talk about the one that probably is the first thing that comes to mind, and that is profanity. How do we take the, uh, the name of the Lord in vain? First of all, with our mouths, and often with profanity, expletives that use God's name. Now, uh, we as God's children should never be okay with these kinds of expletives that use God's name. In fact, the issue we face often is that um, we have to endure uh, such carelessness by others in the course of our everyday life. So it's not unusual, as I mentioned earlier, just to hear God's name being taken in vain by many, many people. Now, I would like to say, suggest, I should say, that there are hard expletives, or maybe the word would be harsh expletives, and there are soft expletives. So, first of all, there's, there's the harsh or the hard ones. This takes place when we use the name of Jesus, Christ, or both in a sentence. And we're not talking to God or about God. We're just kind of throwing out there as kind of a filler or an adjective. And, and even sometimes adding some sexual expletive in the middle of that just to make sure that we are as vile as we can be. Now, this couple of weeks ago, I was at Kohl's. I was returning something I purchased on Amazon to get, you know, to, to, to get it back. And I went up to the counter and I was being pleasant with the person that was there. And it was a young man who was, who was there helping me. He was scanning the items and something wasn't working with it. And he blurted out, blah, 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 blah. And he was taking the name of the Lord in vain um, a couple of times. And it was just like it just didn't face him. Now, I, I'm, usually, I'm usually kind of casual about this and just seek to ignore it because I know, hey, this is, you know, this is someone who's not a believer probably. Um, but this time I was like, you know, I'm not going to ignore it. And, and, and I'm not confrontational in that kind of a sense, but I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to ask a question here. So I answered him respectfully, and I said, so do you know him? And he kind of looked at me and said, well, who? I said, Jesus Christ. And he just kind of looked at me with a befuddled look, like, what, what in the world are you talking about? See, for him, he really had no idea what he was saying. It's just a, an expletive that, that just fills in the gaps. and It's just what you do. It's just a habit now that he has formed. He had no idea what he was saying in reality or the, the extent or, the, or the, the shame of it. And friends, we encounter this a lot, don't we? Now, you know, I've mentioned to you I like to play golf, and I actually like to go play golf as a 
as a personal kind of outlet to things. But one of the things I love is going and playing and going by myself. And part of the reason I like that is because I never know who I'm going to be paired up with. And I'm usually, right now, paired up with you know, three other people, so there's a foursome. And here's how it usually works. Because you get up and you start playing, and after the you know, first few holes, you know, everyone's kind of getting to know each other. And, um, whether they're playing bad or not, usually there's some expletives that are mentioned, and oftentimes the name of the Lord is put out there um, as one of those expletives. But about the seventh or eighth hole, we start getting to know each other a little bit more, and the question comes up. So, Rod, what do you do? And I say, well, you know, interesting you ask. I'm a minister of the gospel, pastor of a church um, that meets in, let's say, normally Castro Valley. And as soon as I respond, their eyes go, and they start offering apologies for things that they have said and that kind of stuff. Now, my friends, it's just, it's, it's all there. It's out there. But, but hear this. It's not just out there. It's, it's in here. Because we can be guilty of failing in this. We all have the words stored in our minds, don't we? And we can recite them off if we wanted to. Unfortunately, that's the case. But the issue is that we must learn to harness or control our thoughts through God-given discipline. The scripture would call that bridling our tongue. Okay? And that's, that's a work for us. In other words, that's a discipline. That is applying the gospel to our speech. And if you come out of a life um, before Christ that you were just free in your language and that kind of stuff, sometimes you don't even know that you're saying it until after the fact that you said it. You probably had some experiences where it's come out at the wrong time and you feel so ashamed, right? Those are hard expletives, but there's also soft expletives. These are commonly acceptable swear words that are just shortened options of uh, uh, somewhat disguised versions of the hard expletives. And this may be where most of us live. So rather than using um, a hard expletive, we tend to be settled into using soft words that are culturally acceptable, especially within Christianity. So words like golly and gosh and OMG and geez and jumping Jehoshaphat or Jiminy Cricket, you probably didn't realize that those are words that were substitutions for Jesus Christ. Now my parents were always on us if we used soft expletives because they didn't want us to cheapen or bring dishonor to God's name. Now, at the time, as a young person, I just thought, this is really over the top. I'm just, I'm not saying the actual word, Dad. Come on, Mom, get off. I'm using this so I, so I don't have to say that other word. The problem is even this, these soft ones can be, can be means then of us uh, dishonoring the Lord or diminishing our, our, our value of who he is. So now as someone who has grown up with the Lord, I feel the same way. It's like, be careful about what you're doing. There. I don't use that expression. Try and find something. Yeah, no, and listen, what we have to do is we have to train ourselves now to use expressions and words that are honoring to the Lord. So you have the culture out there that maybe the pagan culture that uses certain words. Then we have the Christian culture that has certain acceptable words. Don't let those standards determine what you're going to do. Choose carefully the words that you're going to use 
and develop a habit to honor the Lord with words that truly reflect who he is. So friends, the encouragement to all of us is to work hard in our heart and our mind to discipline ourselves not to take on the language of secular culture or Christian culture, but to take on the language that God wants us to have that's breathed out of his word. Discipline yourselves to speak purposely with integrity. That's the first one, profanity. Now, the, the next one is this, sorcery, sorcery. Now, of course, sorcery has to do with the occult. In the ancient world, many people believed that you could access the power of the gods by harnessing or speaking their name, as if the gods had to respond to your magical incantations if you just spoke out his name. And the idea here, then, is that mentioning God's name is a power to get God to do the things that you want him to do. But we read in Deuteronomy 18 that God considers sorcery or, or that kind of magical approach to his name as an abomination to the Lord. And friends, this is still an issue in the church today. There are false teachers that are part of what is typically called the word faith movement who say if you speak God's word out loud by faith in the name of the Lord, that God must answer your requests. Now, friends, that, that is seeking to harness God's name as a mechanism for power, okay? And saying, since I mentioned his name, he has to do that. Now, friends, it creeps into our prayer life, doesn't it? Now, you may do this without thinking. It may just be bad habits, but let me kind of explain what I'm saying. Instead of praying, Lord, we, we come to you asking that you provide for our needs, we can instead say, Dear Lord, Father God, we come to you, Father God, Lord and King, and we ask you, Father God, to provide for our needs, Lord Jesus. As if as many different ways to describe God are put in that sentence to somehow magnify and harness God to answer your request. But friends, God is not moved by you somehow just naming off his name in different ways to some say, oh, now they've really got it. I guess I'm going to answer their request. That is actually using his name in vain. It's become now this empty incantation. And so we, even in our prayer life, um, can allow a, a good thing, prayer, to become an evil thing because we're treating God like a genie, repeating his name in order to get what we want. In other words, it's like his name becomes abacadabra. Friends, that is, that is using God's name in vain. So that's sorcery. Third thing is false prophecy. Now, friends, there will always be false prophets. And false prophets will attempt to quote God and say, thus says the Lord. But they're not talking the truth. In fact, they are lying. They speak with the pretense of speaking for God, but in reality, they have other sinful agendas. In Jeremiah chapter 14, and verse 14, and it says this, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. Friends, this happens. And this happens in churches. And this happens by people who identify themselves as pastors, speaking in the Christian context to congregations who are deliberately proclaiming lies about God 
That is taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's misrepresenting. Another one, perjury. This is the offering of false oaths. You make, you make an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and you use the name of God as proof of that truthfulness, but in truth, you are lying. You are giving a distorted testimony. You know it. That's perjury. So using God's name to confirm what is false as if it was true is using God's name in vain. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Here's another one. Authority. Using God's name to advance your own agenda. Now friends, this has happened throughout the course of history and it happens today. God's name has been used to endorse things like the Crusades, the slave trade, political parties, social causes, when God is not in actual fact behind them at all. But his name is used as an endorsement statement. And it happens today when God's people want to do something but are not necessarily looking for godly accountability or sound biblical advice. They're not willing to listen to godly Christians or biblical counselors or church elders. They just say, we believe that this is what God's will is for us. You see, if you just say, this is God's will, then how can you argue? Because we've determined this is God's will. Or God has given us a peace about this decision. Now friends, we can so easily throw out God's name as a stamp of approval so that we can pursue our own agenda under the umbrella of God's will. We give off the appearance of being spiritual, but the reality is we're just doing what we want to do and we're slapping God's will. Now I'm not looking into everyone's heart. You have to ask yourself the question, is this what I am doing? Is this how I function? I remember when I was in university, um, and believed that God was calling me into the ministry. And so I talked with my friends about it, and we interacted over it, and all of them affirmed and encouraged me to keep pursuing that. And then I talked with my father, and my father, who was a pastor at that time, was very encouraging, but also very, very honest and truthful. He asked me some hard questions that I needed to consider and be ready for. And then I talked with the head of the ministry department at the school that I was attending, and his words were wise. Listen to what he said. As I reflected, and tried to get this down as best I could. He said, Rob, I'm so glad to hear what God is doing in your heart. We are here to help you and prepare you as best we can. But you need to go home and start talking to your pastor. To let him know what you believe God is doing in you. You really need to affirm or the, the, the affirmation and the support of your pastor, of the leaders of your church, and of your church family. They know you best and will give you wise counsel. We are a Christian institution and we are here to help, but your calling to the ministry needs to be affirmed by your church family, not a Christian educational institution. Those are wise words. Because friends, we can kind of want to go out by ourselves, kind of go rogue, and affirm it as this is God's will. 
But it may not be, although you want it to be. My friends, it's, it's easy for us then to, to settle um, and, and, and to use God's name as an affirmation for what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. So this, this could be played out in, in areas like choosing someone to marry, transitioning to a job, maybe starting a business, or maybe relocating to another place in the country. We put our agenda in front of God's agenda and use his name to stand authority uh, for what we are doing. And, and we can be guilty then of violating the third commandment. Friends, I've seen it happen. And then the last one here, number six, is hypocrisy. Not living according to your name. When we embrace the name of Christ, but live in such a way as to dishonor his name, we are guilty of violating the third commandment. I mean, just think of Isaiah 29, verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So friends, this is how the Pharisees function as it related to their parents. You may remember the story in Matthew chapter 15. They, they would evade taking care of their parents. They had money, but rather than actually use their money to take care of their parents, they said, Corbin, which means gift to God. In other words, uh, we can't use my money to take care of you because this money is given over to the Lord. I mean, that was just a legal loophole for them, so they didn't have the responsibility of using their money in that way. So friends, ultimately what, what the individual is doing in all of these examples is to use God's name in such a way as to gain uh, themselves an advantage. And in each case, it's a misuse of God's name and brings dishonor. I want to think about this a little bit kind of in a modern setting because in the corporate world, this principle is understood. A company's um, name is its trademark. And there are laws that govern the use of trademarks. And it's unlawful to employ a company's name or a trademark in a way that is not authorized by the trademark owner. And the trademark owner has the right to say who can use the trademark and how they can use it. And if you misuse a company's trademark, the company is entitled to collect damages. When you travel outside the United States, you probably have done this before, maybe in particular in a third world country, you can buy all sorts of products that we have here in the United States, right? I can go to Bolivia and I can buy a Michael Kors or Coach purse for $40. Next time I go, I'll take order, okay? Or an Armani or Hugo Boss belt for $20, or a Rolex watch for $75. Now we all know that the trademark name has been stolen. They've been very, very clever to, to create a deceptive, you know, kind of a copy of that, of that product. But we also know that although it has the name on it, it's empty of value. It's not gonna perform like the actual product. It's empty and they fall short of the real thing. So similarly, we bear God's name and our words and attitudes and actions and beliefs all reflect to the surrounding world who God is and what he is like. 
But we can't do that rightly if we take the name of our Lord God in vain. So God is calling us to present his name rightly and to avoid taking up his name and using it, misusing it in an empty way. That's the first part here of, of, uh, of the statement. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. But we'll turn it positive now, and this, this is what it says. Do, do take the name of the Lord in reference. That would be the opposite of this then, right? If, if I'm kind of misusing it, I want to make sure that I am treating the name of God in a right way. And that's why we, we think about the, the name of the Lord. We think about the fact that the, the Lord's Prayer begins with our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name is holy. His name is set apart. He is to be, uh, his name is to be referenced in its use. And friends, the reality is that as God's children, we are called by his name. Second Chronicles 7.14 reminds us of that. If my people who are called by my name, right? So if you're God's people, you are called by his name. There's something about his name that has now impacted you, that's impressed on you. And not only that, man is to be responsible to his name, to see his name as holy and awesome, as Psalm 111 verse 9 says, or to praise his name because his name alone is exalted. So how then do we show reverence to the name of the Lord? Well, I want to just identify maybe five ways that we do that. I'll be very brief with this. And some of the songs that we sang today reflect these things. But the first one is this. We glorify his name. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. In other words, God is a reflection of his name. His name encompasses who he is. And so we ascribe the greatness of who he is and the greatness that flows out of his self-identifying name. So we present him as supreme and as magnificent. Secondly, we are to exalt his name. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name together. To exalt the name of the Lord is to magnify that name. It means to, to make his name known, to declare the greatness and the magnificence of his name, to put God on display for all to see. So when we sing songs that exalt his name, we sing to declare how marvelous he is, and we want to put him on display by our words and through our worship. Third, we sing praises to his name. I praise the Lord. Again, there's that name again. For the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant, is what Psalm 135, verse 3 says. Praises are the reflections of our thankful hearts for God's work in our lives. He is good. He is pleasant. We sing praises to him for who he is and what he's done in the past with his dealings with Israel and the church, and then in his present, as he's working his will in our lives, and as we seek to live for him. So praise is a declaration and an expression of thankfulness for God's very being at work in our lives. Then this next one, bless his name. Bless his name. 
Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. To bless his name is to, again, express gratitude that he is your God, that he is the one who saved you. It is to say to God, either in spoken words or in song, your name is magnificent, you are worthy to be worshipped. And then we're told also in the Psalms here to call upon his name. We'll give thanks to the Lord. That will be his name. Get it, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. So this expression describes how God's people lean on him. How they go to him in prayer. How they, they, they go to him in trials. How they go to him in times of trouble and despair. He listens and answers and makes himself known. So when we call on his name, we're appealing to the full orb character and the attributes of God. So friends, this is, this is a way that we are showing reference for his name. Now as we seek to pursue a proper reverence for the name of the Lord, we do so in the following arenas. There's some areas that these now are applied. First of all, in our thinking. The way in which we think about God in our private thoughts is really a measure of our commitment to this third commandment. Before God breathed new life into us, as we looked at or mentioned before, we were captivated by falsehood and wicked imaginations that sought to discredit God. But now that we have been born again, our minds are the place where great battles take place to lift up and to praise and to bless and to exalt and to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now that we've been born again, our minds are the, are the place that, that we want to say, we want God to reign. We want him to, to reign supreme. And that's why Paul tells us to be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds as well as to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, or think on these things. So there's, there's an arena there that God is saying, look, you, you honor me, you don't take the name of the Lord in vain in this arena when you're actually doing these things. You're actually referencing my name. And so the name of the Lord must first permeate our hearts and our minds. It must be the guardrail, so to speak, so that our thinking can reflect on who God really is. So that's in our thinking. Then secondly, in our praying. I've already mentioned how we can abuse the name of the Lord in our prayers, but now I want to encourage you to think about the name of the Lord as you pray. We often pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, remembering that the name of the Lord should affect both our approach to prayer, should not just both, should affect our approach to prayer, as well as our agenda for prayer, as well as how we appeal to God in that prayer. He is hallowed. He is set apart. He's not just my big buddy upstairs. He's not my homeboy. He is Yahweh. Now, as a believer, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. I can come with great eagerness and joy, but at the same time, I am coming to the holy creator of the universe. Yes, we can say he's my friend, but he's still God. He is a holy God. Oh, did I mention the fact that he's holy? 
See, we, we can be just cavalier in our attitude of prayer when, when God wants us to remember his name. And when you think about his name, it can also have, have positive aspects and it can have negative aspects, right? You're in awe and amazement and fear of his name. Also, you're, you're, you're rejoicing because of you, you're reminding of who he is. So having a healthy understanding of the name of the Lord helps to guard and guide our prayers so that they are reverent and respectful. Third, in our speaking, in our speaking. Remembering the name of the Lord will result in us carefully and purposefully and thoughtfully using our speech in a way that shows respect for the one who has reached down to deliver us. How do you speak to others? How do you speak to your children? How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your coworkers? How do you speak to Democrats? How do you speak to Republicans? I mean, how do you, how do you speak to customer service representatives or police officers or homeless people? You know, if you first think about the name of the Lord, it's gonna help you realize that you are here to reflect and glorify his name and magnify his name. And so it, it puts guardrails on your speech and it fashions and shape how you're gonna actually interact with this person. The third commandment convicts us of our failure. And then also in our singing, in our singing. I'm so glad that we've been able to sing together. It's just been so nice to hear each other sing praises, not just to God, but to one another that encourages the body. But when we sing on a Sunday morning, when it comes down to it, hear this, friends, it's not about the tune, and it's not about the instruments or the voices, but it's about the content of the song. It's what we're singing that is reflecting back to God what we are saying about him that is good, that is awesome, that we are wanting to praise him for. So when we, are, when we sing, we are to be praising God, giving testimony to those around us that he alone is worthy of our worship. Someone comes in for the first time, there's a few of you here for the first time. I hope that when they leave Gateway, they're gonna know, number one, this church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, because of the way people are singing, that the people actually mean business. And that they adore God for who he is. It's not just, you know, uh, no, we're, we're singing because we realize who we're singing to and who we're singing about. Okay. And then also in our walking and in our, in, our, in our life, we are to live our lives day by day, walking in light of the name of the Lord. Micah 4.5 says this, For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Now see, if, if we haven't recognized that this Old Testament expression, Lord, is actually the identification of his name, we just see it as another title for God. And it just seems like, why is we doubling up? Why is it Lord, our God? Why, why are we doubling up all these titles? Because it's talking about his name. And we then are to walk then in light of his name forever and ever. Now, as we kind of step back from all of these examples, while this law is extended to Israel in its context, it is easily applied 
to the church because the Lord, God of Israel, is also the God of the church. And God has also exalted the Lord Jesus and given him a name that is above every name. So every reverence that is owed to the name of Yahweh is likewise owed to the Lord Jesus Christ, for they are one and the same. In fact, the New Testament expands on our obligations to the name, which is above every name. We are to believe in his name. We are to preach in his name. We are to rejoice at the privilege of suffering shame for his name's sake. And we do that when we take the name of the Lord in reverence. So now, having looked at a name that we need to know and a command that we need to obey, we want to consider now a warning that we need to heed. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, if we're honest, we don't like warnings, do we? We can so easily be resistant to them. It's our natural flesh rising up against God's authority. We really don't like to be told what to do or to be guilted in any way. We can also be callous to them because we've heard them so much. We really don't let them sink in because maybe our good theology is, you know, is, is there. We know good things, but we know that we're covered by his blood. And so we just kind of, we just kind of set it aside. We don't, we don't feel like we need to be guilted anymore. We're just going to, we're callous to it because we kind of settled in our mind, you know, gospel things. When God still wants to challenge us, right? And we can also be overwhelmed by it. I think, I think one of the things we do is when we see our own sinful failures again and again, it can be discouraging to us. So we can avoid warnings because we just don't want to be drawn in by them. But it is important that we see this warning in its context. God is speaking to a people he loves, that he has covenanted with, that he has delivered from bondage, that he is now forming into a particular people. He has demonstrated himself over and over and over and over again that he is for them. Even when they've grumbled repeatedly. So the warning isn't intended for someone who is a pagan. It's for someone who takes the name of the Lord their God. So as we read the third commandment, although we're not Israel, we are God's people, we have been called out by God to be a peculiar people. We are the church, we are the bride of Christ. And although we have been delivered from the bondage of our sin, the reality is we do still sin. Of course, that shouldn't come to, as any surprise to anyone. We rest in the fact that our eternal security is settled because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He's delivered us through his sacrificial death. But resting in Christ doesn't mean that we stop fighting against our sinful tendency. No, we're to ex ourselves toward godliness, Paul said. We seek to grow to become more and more like Christ. We are still God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is not done with us. 
So we're still to fight against the world, the flesh and the devil. We are still being tested and proved so that Christ can present us in splendor without spot and without wrinkle. So friends, when we hear a warning, even if it's in the Old Testament, we need to see it in light of the New Testament and our standing before God and to take it seriously and to learn from the scriptures what God is teaching. So what I'm trying to get at here is there's a tendency for us to look at the Old Testament and say, that was for them. And friends, it was for them, but it's for you too because you identify with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those who disregard this command will not be guiltless, <laughs> will not be guiltless. That's a very soft way of saying, you will be found guilty and punished, right? And it's like someone saying to you, yeah, you really don't want to do that. And what they're saying in reality is, you're gonna get in a lot of trouble if you do that. Okay, so there's a soft way of saying it, and there's kind of like a harsh way of saying it. And when he says to you, they will not be guiltless, he's saying, they are guilty. And friends, that's something that we need to realize, that we are actually guilty. I want to draw your, draw your attention just to two examples in Scripture. I have, our time is, is really getting away from us here, but I want you to at least note Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verses 11 through 20. And I'll just highlight this for you. It's a, it's a great little story that reveals this. I'm just going to read it through quickly, and hopefully you'll capture what is happening here, right? Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched, his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? That some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, and this became known to all the residents of, of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now, believer, now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail now, my point in saying all of this is this, is that this still happens. This kind of attitude, this kind of belief, it, it takes us back to some of the ways we take the name of the Lord in vain. Friends, when that happens, God is not pleased. But hear this, God still works in spite of our sinfulness. What happens at the end of the story here? God turns the situation for his glory. People came wanted to harness the name for selfish purposes. They were exposed. People were in fear. God ultimately is glorified. But they are guilty, and we can also be guilty. Here's another one. 
And this is simply the response of Jerusalem to Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem, right? Remember the story. He's coming into Jerusalem. We call this the triumphal entry. He comes into Jerusalem, and they're shouting. They're calling uh, him king, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they sang his praises, and they adored him, and they waved palm branches at him. And five days later, the same people shouted what? Crucify him. Crucify him. They took his name. In vain. It was a light thing on their lips. Your brother or sister in Christ, have you taken the name of the Lord, your God, in vain? Have you claimed to be his follower and yet you do not love him, you do not trust him, you do not have faith in him, you do not obey him, you're not walking with him? Believer, this is a call from God's word this morning to plead with you to walk in accordance with the profession of the name. If you are an unbeliever today, this is a call from God's word this morning, to plead with you to come to God and receive the forgiveness of sins, to have a new identity, a new name. We are guilty. But friends, the, the good news is that we're not guilty. <laughs> We are guilty because we do these things, right? And yet at the same time, we're not guilty because the blood of Jesus Christ truly covers us. And that's what we read in, in Colossians. Paul wants to make sure that the Colossian people know this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You're guilty, but you're not. This he set aside, nailing it. So here's the reality. We are still guilty of our sin, but that guilt has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean, okay, that I'm gonna go on sinning. No, we, we try not to sin. Our pursuit is to not sin. But we, we, we strive in that pursuit knowing that even in our failure, we are covered by the righteousness of God. So we're guilty, but we have the confidence that we're not guilty because of Christ. And friends, this is, this is what it means to walk with God. It's to rest in our, the blessing of the gospel, which is what Christ has done for us. But then to pursue Christ-likeness which is ridding ourselves of these sinful behaviors. Friends, just when we bring it to a close, three things just to highlight. Maybe to answer the question, how do people respond to the name of the Lord? I just want to highlight three. First of all, um, there is rebellion. There's rebellion. Or you could say unbelief. You know, John 3, 16, and even 17 are pretty well known. But you might want to look at John 3, 18. Because a lot of people skip this. This is what happens when you just take one verse out of the Bible and you don't read it in context. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, or, but, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, this is all related to the name. Secondly, there is emptiness. Emptiness. I use that word based on what we find in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and this is what, what it says. Not, this is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? And they will, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What? I mean, there's going to be a lot of people shocked. And some of us in here may be shocked. Because we're, we're living kind of in this, this land of religiousness rather than in this land of relationship. And of course, ultimately, there is prayer. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we'll finish with this. Hear this. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him, and that's Christ, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Remember that language from the second commandment? <laughs> And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we are called to praise his name. May that be true of Gabriel. May that be true of you. May that be true of you sitting upstairs or in the fellowship hall. May that be true of us. And may we as a church encourage one another to be faithful to that. Because we all fail. And to help people up. And to help people to think clearly about the name of the Lord and its impact on their lives. Lord, help us today. We have labored this morning to consider this third commandment. And our sinful tendency Take the name of the Lord that identifies who you are, but Lord also identifies our relationship with you. To take that name and to misuse that name in an empty way. And Lord, may we not be guilty of that. May we take your name and love it and honor it and respect it and, and praise you because of it. May it be what fuels our thinking, drives our prayer, uh, masters our speech, helps us as, we, uh, as we're able to think through what our lives are to be about. Lord, may, may your name be glorified. May it be exalted. And Lord, help us if we are guilty of failure in any of these things. We come humbly before you. In shame, yes. Guilty, yes. But knowing that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that our sins are already forgiven. They're already paid for. 
Lord, we need you desperately, but Lord, we need to understand you and your word. And Lord, we need to have a greater awareness of the beauty and the majesty, Lord, of your name. Help us, Lord, to, to, to take your name and to live it out in a, in a, in a respectful, reverential way for your glory. We ask now in your precious name. Amen.